1: That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Over the past year, the race to develop effective vaccines for COVID-19 has thrown a spotlight on historical efforts to combat lethal diseases. Yet for all of that, the exploits of Lady Mary Wortley-Montagu, who pioneered smallpox inoculations in 18th century England, remains little known. A new book by Jo Willett highlights the life of this pioneering scientist, feminist and woman of letters. Here, in conversation with our production editor Spencer Mizen, Joe tells the extraordinary story of a woman who changed the course of medical history.
2: Your new book tells a remarkable story of Lady Mary Wortley Montagu. Like um, there are so many facets to this woman, aren't there? She was a fiercely independent poet, a, a woman of letters, and a feminist. Um, I guess we've got to start with the extraordinary role she played in the battle to defeat smallpox. The work she did on developing an inoculation for smallpox predated Edward Jenner by the best part of a century. But to my shame, I I barely heard of her and I I would hazard a guess. I'm far from alone in that. Um, So my first question is, why do you think Montague is so little known? Why why she lived so comprehensively in the shadow of, of Edward Jenner?
3: Yes interesting question Spencer really. Uh, well she she was a, an aristocratic woman uh living at a time when that was perhaps not the easiest thing to be. Um I mean this is the book is is coming out now because April is the 300th anniversary of her decision to inoculate her daughter. Sure. Um and it's that which is the really key thing because she'd been in Constantinople before and she had inoculated her son there, but other people were interested in inoculation at the time. So actually the previous ambassador had had his two sons inoculated there. So it was kind of in the air. And I think that's perhaps part of the problem that uh, it was around the Royal Society had talked about it. She, of course, as a woman, wasn't able to be a member of the Royal Society. But she, she thought this was an interesting thing. Um, and because she was an aristocratic woman, she actually tried to play down her own involvement in it, which I think right. didn't help it. Uh,
2: so I wonder if we could kind of go back to the beginning um, and explain how she came into contact with smallpox. And and, and when she realized that inoculation could provide an, an effective means of combating it, Am I right from reading your book that this was kind of personal to her, wasn't it?
3: Very much so. Very much so. I mean, smallpox, when her grandparents were alive, smallpox was not that serious a thing. It was the kind of thing that you wanted your children to get, a bit like people used to with measles, to kind of get it out of the way. But by the time she was an adult, it, was, it had got more and more serious. And she had a beloved only brother who at 19 died of smallpox. And that was a, a terrible thing. And then the following year, she got it herself. And you know you were you wouldn't necessarily survive. Only one in three people died right. Um, so it was a huge thing her getting. It. she got it very seriously. um and um the people in the press said she was going to die the the outside the street, they put straw down to quieten the horses. She did survive, but, of course, she survived pop like people did. Right. So she, she totally lost her looks. Um, she, lo- she lost her eyebrows. And after that, she always had what they, people used to call the wortly stare, kind of quite a, a sort of scary stare. Right. And she, also her eyesight suffered as a result. She could never cope with bright light again. That was a very common thing. Um, and she had been at court, so being beautiful was a pretty important thing. She had this line, beauties and monarchs rule with equal sway. And she'd lost, she'd lost her looks. I mean, she survived, but she'd lost her looks. So she knew how serious it was.
2: And so am I right in saying, did she first um get the idea for uh inoculating people when she was in Turkey? Is that right?
3: That's right. Her husband went off to he was made the ambassador yes. to Turkey. So Normally, men would go by themselves. It was always men who became ambassadors. But sure. she was being Lady Mary. She was determined to go with him. She traveled across Europe with him and their son, who was only three at the time. And when she was there, she was aware that inoculation took place. Uh, she was the first woman to go and, and dine alone with Turkish women and, you know, wives of the vizier and that kind of thing. And they they told her about it. And so, of course, she got interested there.
2: And, and how does she, so what does she do then? How does she go about, because I, I guess a lot of people yes. would have just left left it at that, but she was obviously the kind of person who thought, right, I can make this work for me and people I know. How, how does she go about oh, doing sir. that?
3: Do you mean in Turkey or do you mean when she came back to, to England? Well, we're both
2: really, both in both. Turkey both okay, and okay, yes. in England.
3: So in Turkey, she made sure that Workley, her husband, was out of the way. Yeah. And then she asked a a Greek, a a little old Greek woman to come. Because this was what used to happen. The the Turks used to get Greeks or Armenians to do the inoculation. And that person would risk their own life if they hadn't had smallpox already by going to, to somebody who had smallpox and taking a little bit of smallpox pus, pox pus, yeah. and um, then bringing it back in a in a walnut shell. They would then uh, make cuts on people's wrists and ankles, and then they would put a little bit of the pus in there. So basically it went into your bloodstream. They'd strap the walnut shell on so they make sure everything stayed in, and then they'd wait 10 days. And after about 10 days, people would begin to show very, very mild forms of smallpox. Sure. But I mean you know, hardly anything compared to what Lady Mary had been through. And three or four days later, they'd be better, and then they'd be protected for the rest of their lives.
2: So she came She came back to England subsequently. She
3: came back to England. So she had her son done there. Yeah. Um, And she'd taken out with her a surgeon called Dr Maitland. Now, we think of surgeons as very prestigious, but yeah. in those days, a physician was the prestigious one, and a surgeon was... You know, closer to a butcher in a sense. Right. Okay. But he had heard about inoculation. He was interested. So he went with her and helped her in Turkey. They, she came back in 1718. In 1719, there was another outbreak, but she was too nervous to do anything about it because she knew it would be very incendiary to do anything. But in 1721, there was a really bad outbreak. She had a friend and neighbor called James Craggs who died. She had a young cousin called Hester Fielding who died. And she thought, this is ridiculous. I need to protect my only daughter. So she wrote to Maitland and he came from Hertfordshire, which was his practice, to Twickenham, where she was living. Uh, He was quite reluctant, but she was very keen. And together they inoculated her little girl. And so her little girl was the first person to be inoculated in the West.
2: So this is obviously a a landmark moment um, in in the the fight fight against smallpox. Absolutely. why was he so reluctant? What what worried him about doing this?
3: Well, he knew that it was controversial. Um and it it was uh doctors didn't like it because they felt uh that it was undermining them. And this little simple folk practice was was going to be a problem for them. And they probably wouldn't get many fees as a result. People sure. wouldn't call them when they got smallpox. So she, even in Turkey, she wrote to her great friend Sarah Chiswell saying that if I come back to England, I may have the courage to war with them because she knew that doctors wouldn't be happy. Clerics didn't like it because they felt it was interfering with nature right. and shouldn't happen. And politically, it was also very controversial. Ultimately, the Whigs tended to like it and the Tories tended to not like it.
2: Why, why is that? Why was there that distinction?
3: Well, partly because... Uh, so Lady Mary did the inoculation and um, Maitland had wanted to have uh, physicians there to observe it. She didn't want that. She said, yeah. OK, three days after, we'll let some, some doctors in to look. And she also are some ladies and persons of distinction to come in. We don't know who those people were. But somehow, word reached Princess Caroline, who was married to Prince of Wales, who then became George II in yeah. time. She was German um, and was living here. She was brighter than George II. And she could see this was a good thing. So she then started... Uh, maneuvering to 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 see if it could, if uh, you know, smallpox could be inoculation could be something they could do. She herself had had a daughter who had suffered it very badly the previous year, and she didn't want her two younger daughters to get it. Yeah. Um, and so the and and George II and Princess Caroline, the Whigs liked them, and they liked the Whigs. Um, the Tories thought they were German; they didn't like them. So it, it became political because of that.
2: Yeah, sure. So. How much did the fact that she was a a woman prejudice the establishment's reception of her of her discovery?
3: Oh, very much so, very much so. Yes, for instance, Sir Hans Sloan, who was the royal surgeon at the well t- physician at the time, he um, he wrote about about inoculation, but he said. The ambassador and his lady wife brought it back. He absolutely, totally played Mary down, And it was only sort of 30 years later that he rewrote to accept that actually it had really been her. Work sure. had virtually nothing to do with it. Yes. So yeah, absolutely, being a woman was, was a major problem for her in that sense.
2: Um, and before inoculating, what what did the medical establishment do to combat smallpox i mean what what were the treatments
3: there was virtually nothing you could do right. um you there was some dispute about whether you a- either kept people very hot or you kept people very cold and um neither made any difference at all um uh, yeah so but but of course they took their fees for doing it and she had already been aware of that when she had smallpox herself she was treated by someone called dr samuel garth and she'd written a poem being rather critical of him.
2: Right, okay. Yeah. And, and how did all this opposition that she faced, how did that affect her on a, on a personal level? I mean, was she the sort of person to embrace confrontation and sort of say, well, I'm gonna prove prove you all wrong? I mean, wh- where did that inner steel yeah. come from?
3: She she was a controversial person, definitely. Right. And she 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 liked controversy um, in her whole life. You can see that, you know, she she's quite marmite. She, right. she had, you know, big passions with people. She fell out with people. She very much knew her own mind. But having said that, she said that every day of her life, she regretted having done what she did because it was so controversial. Um, oh, right, and okay. yeah, yeah, and um after the inoculation, when young Mary, her daughter was was a little girl, they spent their time going around in the carriage off to aristocratic households because they were invited to inoculate, and young Mary then wrote about how she remembered the significant shrugs of servants and the way people kind of booed the carriage as it went by. it was it was very difficult.
2: But did she feel vindicated by the end of her life, or or, or was it a case of it it, it was a battle not worth fighting?
3: Well, sadly, I don't think she ever really got the praise for it. Uh, She lived abroad for the last 25 years of her life and only then returned to London right at the end. Uh, And, uh, yeah, people by then were praising her, um, but she was she was sort of quite famous just for being her not necessarily for inoculation because she also was a writer and she was she was quite a character and by the time she returned to london her son-in-law was the prime minister so um you know she she moved in great circles anyway really
2: sure now how i mean how significant do you think her work in the eventual victory over smallpox was i mean is it fair to say that no, Lady Mary, no Edward Jenner, or, or is that kind of overstating it?
3: I don't think it is really overstating, Spencer, because um, what happened was, je- what happened was, um, the the medical establishment accepted it, but they were still determined to medicalize. So they insisted on bleeding and purging and pe- putting people on restricted diets before they were inoculated. Uh, and sometimes when people died which they did it probably was because of the bleeding and purging but of course no one could prove that um and so edward jenner as a young as a as a child went through that whole process of having to be bled and purged and he had a really terrible experience and it was because of that that he thought i really think i need to do something about this there must be a different way of doing it and he made the mental leap to realize that Um, uh, dairy maids didn't get smallpox and worked out that was because they were getting cowpox. So he then introduced cowpox into people rather than smallpox, in effect. Sure. So That's a simplified way of explaining it. But that's that's what happened, really. Yeah. So I think you can say without Lady Mary, if he hadn't been inoculated, he wouldn't have thought, he wouldn't have made that leap.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: Into her life came Francesco Algarotti, who was Italian. He was the same age as her son. Um, so she was in her 40s, he was in his 20s. Um, and he, she was completely dazzled by him.
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
2: Now, as you just um, just alluded to, um, Lady Mary's work on vaccination it was world changing. But ironically, it wasn't the the thing for which she was most famous at the time. I, I was wondering if um, you could talk to us a little bit about her collaboration with the poet Alexander Pope, because that was that was something else that also put her in the in the public eye, wasn't it?
3: Yes, of course. Yes, yes. So. As a young woman, she, a young married woman, she came to London and she kind of fell in with a group of sort of the writers and thinkers of the day. So people um, like um, uh, Congreve and John Gay, and she became best friends with Alexander Pope at that time. And they collaborated on, on writing poems. I mean, as an aristocrat, she didn't need to, and in fact, it wouldn't be a good idea to be published, but she collaborated with Pope and Gay on a, a series of poems um, that, unfortunately, then were published. Right. Um, and so uh, that wasn't great for her reputation at all. Um, uh, and one of them, actually, was about smallpox. Was, was, so normally, it was a series of seven poems that kind of and each one was to do with the, the day of the week. And the final one was traditionally, because um, they'd taken the idea from Latin poems, was uh, about death. But she wrote one about smallpox, which shows again how important smallpox was. But anyway, so so they were great friends. Pope was uh, very different from her. He was middle class, she was aristocratic, he was Tory, she was Whig. Um, he but but they were similar in he was he was very small. He he um had a disease when he was young, and so um, which had restricted his growth, and he was always in pain. Um and um, I think they were both outsiders in that sense. And they both used wit and irony to kind of deal with the thing things they coped with. So I think that's probably why that was a bond. So she went off to Turkey. He gave her a, a red leather bound copy of, of their poems when she left. And while she was away in Turkey, he wrote her increasingly... Kind of amorous letters. He obviously had a huge crush on her, and she, um, the poems he sent her poems, which were clearly relating to her. As she returned, she got closer to England. It was obviously going to be a little bit difficult. Um, And he had written a love poem about two young lovers who had had done a double suicide at Stanton Harcourt. He wrote it to her, obviously, kind of implying, and she. Again, characteristically wrote a sort of um a sort of witty, jokey poem back about, oh well, never mind they've died because P- uh, Mr. Pope has written them a poem, you know. And um he got the message and realized that she was basically saying, actually, I'm not really that keen on you. So they kind of continued back in London. They were part of the same circle of friends. He had a house in Twickenham, his famous house in Twickenham, where he had this, this garden and grotto. And she and Workley rented a house in took nearby. And again, they became friends. He commissioned a a portrait of her, which hung in his best room forever. But something meant that they fell out. And we don't really know exactly why. Her family said it was because he did say to her, I'm in love with you. And she just laughed at him. Um, But there are other other theories as to why it happened. But then they fell out very, very badly. And he started writing about her. And of course, he was much more established than her as a writer and could write publicly about her. And she teamed up with another friend of theirs called John Harvey and wrote a response to one of uh, Pope's poems. And that just made the whole thing worse. And it got completely out of hand. And... Pope
2: won, really. Pope won. And, and what did that do to her reputation?
3: Well, I think it, it certainly meant she lost a lot of friends.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, and, and also that she got a reputation for being a, a Haridan... Um, for being, um, you know, he 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 satirized her Other the place. He used to call her Sappho, although sapp- Sapphic didn't have quite the connotation it has with us now. But he was he was saying that Wortley was very mean, that she was horrible to people. They, they, he, I mean, one bit he said that um Wortley and Mary had been glad that their son had been drowned at sea. Um, in fact, their son had been lost at sea. But, I mean, even if he had been drowned, there's no way Mary would have been glad that he'd sure, been drowned yeah. at sea. Yes, yes. So, no, he vilified her totally. It sort of, it reminds me a bit of sort of Mary Beer stuff recently, when Mary Beer's yeah. been vilified, sure, you know. Sure. And it's that thing about a middle-aged woman. And even now, it's harder to yeah. protect yourself.
2: Sure. So, your book is called The Pioneering Life of Mary Wortley Montague, Scientist and Feminist. Now we've covered off the scientist side. <laughs> Turn into the feminism. I mean, how did her feminism inform her writings, and and what did her particular brand of feminism look like?
3: Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, as a as a teenager, she uh, spent her whole time in her father's library. They had they lived in Thoresby in Nottinghamshire. And probably no one really ever been in this library, but there were masses of books there. And she read all the female writers there, including one by a, a, a feminist who predated her called Mary Estelle. It was a bit older than her. Yeah. And Mary Estelle had written a book saying that, really, women should be educated separately from men. And Mary loved this idea. And she loved the idea of being an abbess, which is what uh, Mary Estelle had suggested. Um, uh, And uh, so right from the beginning, she was interested in what being a woman meant. I mean, remember, the word feminism had not been used and wouldn't be used for another 150 years. Um, But she still was always interested in women. Because she was aristocratic, um, you had to have a, an arranged marriage. That was the standard thing; it was sorted. But and she met Wortley Edward workley Montagu, and it looked like they might get married. But her father wasn't happy with the, the terms of the of the marriage or, or proposed marriage. Um, so he was about to force her into a, an arranged marriage with a man with a wonderful name of Clotworthy Skeffington.
2: That is a wonderful name. <laughs>
3: But I'm so Wortley suggested to her that they elope, and so they eloped. So And that weirdly, that's a feminist act for her, because she got out of that forced marriage. I mean, sure. you don't think of it eloping as, as feminist, but it was. Um, and she knew already that she wasn't in, in love with Wortley, which again, I, you know is I don't know, can you say that's feminist, but you know it meant that she was very interested in this whole area. Um, And then when she, then they went off to Constantinople. When they came back, she became great friends with Mary Estelle and they used to often talk about things and write responses to experiences that were going, things that were happening in in life. So for instance, there was a young woman called Eleanor Bowes who had died very young, people thought, at the hands of her husband. And so Mary Estelle and Mary Wortley wantabue sat down together one afternoon. They both wrote a poem about this. So there was a lot of that where they were thinking about women. Um,
2: and what did yeah. the establishment make of her writings? I mean, what, how were they received?
3: Um you have to think that they weren't published. They were passed around right. for people to enjoy reading them. Sometimes, as I said, sometimes things were published, which wasn't ideal. Mm. Um, I think she was respected as a writer, but she there's no way she could have the, the clout that someone like Alexander Pope could have. It was, it was just almost like a game. Um, she did try to write some journalism for which she got paid, but again, that, but again, that was anonymous. You know, she, she often wrote anonymously uh, if she was going to be in the public gaze. Um, but I think now it's very interesting to look back on her poems. And she, she is a very good poet. And another wonderful bit of her writing is her letters. Her letters are fantastic. And really, I think she'd be much better known. She's so lively. She's so interesting. She writes about so many things. They're, they're just a great bit of work.
2: So can you tell us a little, a little bit more about the letters? I mean, were they written? I know she wrote quite a lot um, in Turkey, didn't she? And that had quite an impact on how people back in England perceived perceive Turkey. I mean, I wonder if you just go into yes. a bit more detail on, on that, please.
3: Of course, of course. So she wrote letters all her life. But when she came back from Constantinople, Mary Estelle said to her, you should think about um putting together, compiling the the letters of your experience in Turkey, uh, which we now know as the embassy letters.
2: Sure.
3: Um, so she she had kept all the letters that she'd received and then she uh and she and she'd made copies of the ones that she'd written, but she edited it quite a lot. So actually it's it's not really what she wrote. It it's kind of what she wrote in retrospect right. of her whole whole experience. Um, the story with those embassy letters was the idea was they would be published after she died so as not to cause any any problems uh for her um and uh, classic lady mary really she she t- towards the end of her life gave them to a um a, 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 a cleric in Rotterdam and said, Please make sure these letters are published. She didn't know him, but he was the only person she thought she would give them to. He thought, Oh, this is a bit incendiary, a little bit difficult. So he showed them to her daughter and son in law, who absolutely weren't at all keen to have those letters published. So they tried to, they paid him off. But what he hadn't realized that when he was in Rotterdam, some, some English travelers had borrowed them overnight, copied them, and they then um, sold those letters on. And so they were published after her life, and everybody loved them. There was a whole craze about Turkey as a result, and that's really when she became much more famous. So after her death.
2: Right. Okay.
3: Um, but then, apart from the embassy letters, there are all her other letters that she wrote through her life. There are some wonderful letters when she was she and Workley were courting. And then there's a whole series of letters when she lived abroad for 25 years of her life in middle age back to england missing everybody and and what happened to her
2: then now as you mentioned she she um married edward Montague. um but that am I, am I right in saying that that relationship turned stale I and mean, then she then eloped with with basically with with someone else when she was in middle age, is that is that right?
3: Uh, she, yeah, she didn't really elope with him. Right. What happened? Yes, she. Um, yeah, she you know, she probably shouldn't really have married Wortley, but she did, and 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 they rubbed along. They were just very different from each other, but they rubbed along. Um, but in middle age, I think she had really a, a midlife crisis. Um, you know, she'd lost a lot of friends. Um, her um, things weren't going very well with her daughter. Her only son was very difficult. Um, and into her life came. Francesco Algarotti, who was Italian. He was the same age as her son. Um, so she was in her 40s, he was in his 20s. Um, and he, she was completely dazzled by him. He was intellectually fascinating. Um, she loved Italian anyway. They could converse. He was very courteous to her. He, he wrote about how wonderful she'd been about smallpox. Um, and she fell completely for him. He was very sectionized. And uh, he, unbeknown to her, he was bisexual. Uh, and he started having an affair with her friend John Hervey, who who um John Harvey, who who she'd written the um the, uh, the poem to about Pope. Um so um, and I my you know, you, you, you know, I can only surmise, but I think that Algarotti just basically went to bed with everybody he met. Right. And so <laughs> he just he just seduced her, and she was just Overpowered by her feelings towards him and her poems. She's normally her poems are so full of irony and sarcasm, and her poems there are just totally full of emotion for him. But he, you know, was not only having an affair with Harvey, he was having an affair with about six other people at the same time. Uh, and so um, he then went off to St. Petersburg. Um, uh, to, to the court there. And she then came up with this idea that maybe they could live together in Venice. Right. And so she set off to Venice to do that. Um, and assuming that he would follow her, he started having an affair with Frederick the Great and really wasn't so keen to meet up with Lady Mary. Right. <laughs> <It> sounds
2: like <laughs> quite the character. He
3: really was. Yeah. He really was. Yeah. It's hard to... Find him very likable because he hurt her so much, really. Sure. But then also she seems so vulnerable. You think, what are you doing? You're yeah. fooling yourself. She pretended to Wortley and all her friends that she was traveling abroad because of her health. But in fact, she was heading towards Venice. He never actually made it to Venice, but they did finally meet up together and spent a couple of months together when it became evident that really that was the end of the relationship. Sure. And then she stayed on. She stayed on in, in Europe.
2: Did you warm to her in the process of, of writing your book? I mean, what kind of woman did you discover in your, in your research?
3: I, I really love her, Spencer. I think she's fantastic. She's such a character. She's so vibrant. She seems to be so much for me, a woman for now. I mean, I think she should be as well known as Virginia Woolf or Mary Shelley. And you're right. We don't really know about her. I, I didn't know about her until I, I started reading her, looking into her. Um so I, I do warm to her. I mean, she was a terrible snob, which is difficult. As, as I say, she rubbed people up the wrong way. She often got things very wrong, um, just plain wrong. But she's always fun. She's always fun.
0: That was Jo Willett. Her new book, The Pioneering Life of Lady Mary Wortley Montague, Scientist and Feminist, was published by Pen & Sword History in March. You can find a link in the episode description of this podcast. Joe is also writing a feature on Lady Mary, which you can read in an upcoming issue of BBC History magazine soon. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for the latest episode in our Bayer Tapestry series.